Welcome to the King's Church Amersham podcast. For more information and resources, go to www.kca.church. Your presence with us. Father, may it be here in this building that you pour yourself out. May it be for those at home, pour yourself out into our lives. Father, thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you are God over every situation. By the grace of God, we will carry on. And we will do more. And we will do more. Lord, may your kingdom come. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. How wonderful to be with you, and how wonderful to be with you at home as well. We continue this morning the series we began two weeks ago, looking at, more importantly, learning from the Sermon on the Mount. And you remember, I hope, we said two weeks ago that although crowds are listening, and Jesus is very aware of them, nevertheless, the sermon, his teaching, is directed at his disciples. It's addressed to them, far more than 12 of them, to those who are following him. It's not addressed to society at large. Because what Jesus is describing, as he launches his manifesto, as he sets out in detail, perhaps for the first time, what he's about, what he stands for, it's the lifestyle of the kingdom of heaven, which can only be lived by those who are in the kingdom of heaven, who've had their lives transformed by being born again. That's the only way to enter the kingdom. Who have the Holy Spirit sent by the Father in heaven, living within them, filling them, empowering their lives with the very life of heaven itself. Those are the people who are supernaturally enabled to live this way. They're the people called to live this way, reflecting God's own nature, being like his son Jesus. These are the people who can get life right and live the life that Jesus called blessed. God favoured. You're the lucky ones. To use the subtitle we've given this series. These are the people who know how to live. And that's you and that's me. Not because we're anything remotely special by ourselves. But because by his grace we have become part of this kingdom that Jesus is announcing in these early chapters of Matthew's gospel. So with all that in mind... Let's hear the word of God read to us this morning from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Thank you, Lucy. So we hear these two very simple but utterly astonishing statements. Jesus says to his disciples on the hillside in first century Palestine, and Jesus says to you and me in 21st century Buckinghamshire, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Yes, you. And there is a little bit of yes, you about it. The word you is emphasized in the Greek each time. It's as if he says, you, yes, I mean you. 
It's you who are the salt of the earth. You're the ones who are the light of the world. And when we hear that read, there's a temptation to do a sort of mental sidestep. You're the salt of the earth. Oh, really? wonder who that is he's talking about. You're the light of the world. Oh, gosh, who's that then? Because they're such massive statements. It's very hard to hear them and think, yeah, that's me, all right. The salt of the earth. Or even collectively, because both times the word he uses is plural. It's very hard to think, yeah, King's Church Amersham, spot on. That's us, the light of the world. But that's what he calls us, his kingdom people, both then and now. And if you think you're pretty ordinary, how could he possibly mean me? Or how could he possibly mean us together? And just think what sort of rabble he was talking to on back then on the hillside 2,000 years ago. You can bet they were a pretty ordinary bunch. But that's just it. He was talking to ordinary people then. He's talking to ordinary people now. Except that they were shortly to become, after Jesus died, after he was raised, after the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, they were going to become, and we have already become, his kingdom people. Ordinary people, full of the Spirit of God, and the love and the life of God, enabled to live this extraordinary kingdom life. And in that way, to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Does he mean us? He surely does. So before we go any further and look at the text in more detail, let's be clear about one thing. When he calls us the salt of the earth, he's talking about the flavor, the sharpness, the distinctiveness, the preserving and saving power of the kingdom of God impacting this world through us. And when he talks about the light of the world, he means the illuminating, transforming, hope-bringing, beacon-like presence of the kingdom of God shining into this dark world through us. That's our call. That's who we are in Christ. Salt and light. There you are. My daughter mocked me for the sophistication of this visual aid. <laughs> Salt and light. Two pretty ordinary household items, both then and now. A candle or a lamp in those days rather than a torch. But still an everyday commodity. Every house would have had them. And yet both are items of extraordinary potential for impact and for dramatic change. There's nothing in the least bit bland about either of them. And Christian, you and I are equally ordinary. And yet we too have an extraordinary potential for impact and for change because of this extraordinary kingdom life that God has unleashed within us in the person of his Holy Spirit. So that's the first challenge. Simply to believe what Jesus says. Salt of the earth, light of the world, who me? Yes, you, really. Let's look at the text. You're the salt of the earth, verse 13. What does he mean? Well, as we said two weeks ago, some of the force, some of the punch of parts of the Sermon of the Mount is hard for us to appreciate, simply because we're very familiar with it. And often familiar with it in a way that may be very far from what Jesus originally meant. And it's like that here. He's a real salt of the earth type, we say of someone. Or maybe at a funeral, oh, he was just part of the salt of the earth. He was a thoroughly decent bloke, honest, hardworking, reliable, 
told it like it was, always willing to help out, great chap to have around, salt of the earth. Well, that may all be true if you really are the salt of the earth. But you can bet that Jesus meant a lot more than that. He didn't just mean that you're supposed to bring a little bit of flavor to this world, make it a nicer tasting place, a better experience for people to pass through. See, salt is nothing if it's not distinct. It is a powerful flavor, a really sharp tang. It stands out. It never simply blends in. If you're cooking with it, you don't want to overdo the salt. And that's what we bring to the earth. Because we're kingdom people, filled with the Spirit of God, which he sent from above. We bring with us a very different flavor, a very distinct, powerful, sharp flavor. The flavor of heaven. It's unique on the earth. It's found only in us. There are hints of it all around for sure. But for the real full-blooded taste, you need to come into contact with the people of God. The salt of his people, you and me, brings the flavor of God's kingdom right here on earth where people can experience it. And one thing salt does, it creates thirst. You have a bacon sandwich or two at lunch. You wonder why you're thirsty mid-afternoon. It's the salt in the bacon, isn't it? Now, there's a wonderful story told about John Wesley, which we know is true because he wrote it himself in his diary. It's early 1736. Wesley is a young man. He's a professional churchman. And he's on a ship to America. He's on his way to become a pastor, a missionary in Georgia. And on this ship, there's a group of German Christians, Moravians. And he records in his diary how he sees their humility as they regularly look after the other passengers in surprising ways. And they won't accept any pay for doing so. Performing for them, he writes, those servile offices which none of the English would undertake. Well, whatever that means, it sounds pretty unpleasant. And if they were mistreated or physically abused, which happened often, they never complained, but they picked themselves up and got on with it. And Wesley is impressed. And then while the Moravians are having a service, suddenly there's a fierce storm and waves pour over the ship as if the great deep had already swallowed us up, he writes. People are screaming in panic. They think they're going to die. But the Moravians are completely calm. They just carry on singing their hymns. And after it's all over, Wesley asks them, weren't you afraid? No, they reply, we're not afraid to die. And again, Wesley's deeply impacted this is so far from where he is and after they safely landed in America Wesley seeks out one of the Moravians and asks his advice about the pastoral work he's about to begin and Wesley recalls the conversation in his diary the man asked my brother I must first ask you one or two questions have you the witness within yourself does the spirit of God bear witness with your spirit that you're a child of God and Wesley wrote I was surprised and knew not what to answer. He observed it and asked, do you know Jesus Christ? I paused and said, I know he is the saviour of the world. True, replied he, but do you know he has saved you? I answered, I hope he has died to save me. He only added, do you know yourself? I said, I do. But then Wesley added, but I fear they were vain words. Now, two years later, Wesley famously records in his diary his conversion at a Moravian meeting in London when the professional churchman, 
met Jesus Christ for himself and knew for the first time that he himself was saved. And the rest is gloriously history. But you see, it started when he tasted secondhand the kingdom of God when he met the Moravians. And he realized that what they had, he lacked. And the salt of God's kingdom people made him thirsty. And many of us could say, we came into God's kingdom that same way. Because you see, salt does more than create thirst. Salt also preserves. Salt dramatically slows down the otherwise inevitable process of decay in food. It prevents bacteria from growing. It kills microbes. And in a warm climate, without refrigerators, it's salt that stops meat rotting. We might say, salt saves. And that's what we're called to do as the salt of the earth. To come into close contact with people who are spiritually rotting. And to save them, to preserve them. In the sense of a life preserver that you throw out to a drowning man and he grabs hold of it and you've saved him, you've preserved his life. We're the salt that with close contact can stop the rot and preserve for eternity those who otherwise would swiftly decay in spiritual death. We're the salt of a dying earth. The only preservative that can snatch men and women to safety before it's too late. One other thing about salt. When this stuff gets into a cut or a wound, it stings, doesn't it? Now, Jesus always knew his kingdom was not going to be popular with everybody, and he never pretended otherwise. And I don't think it's a coincidence. This verse follows on immediately from verses 11 and 12, where Jesus talks about the blessing of being persecuted and lied about because of him. Part of the reason for that is because we are the salt of the earth. Salt is too strong not to have an effect. Some we will preserve, others we'll antagonize. We'll sting them like salt in a wound and they'll react. And when they do, Jesus said, you're blessed because great is your reward. But anyway, that was two weeks ago. So when Jesus says we are the salt of the earth, He's not just talking about us bringing a little bit of flavor, even kingdom flavor. I don't think he's talking about social action, about having an influence, about improving things here on earth, about making it better by introducing Christian values. Now hear me, I am not knocking that. If we're faithful to Jesus as we live out our lives, then we will do all of this. Some of us are in particular situations or have a particular calling where that is very much a part of being salt in the world around us. But primarily, it's about salvation. It's about the gospel. It's about the kingdom of God. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, not to improve things on earth. And while we will most certainly do those things along the way, being salt is primarily about bringing the salty distinctiveness of heaven to those around us so it makes them thirsty and then it gets rubbed into their lives sufficiently well so as to be effective to preserve them for eternity. That's our main job as salt. You are the light of the world, verse 14. Again, what does he mean? What is the light for? Well, it's similar to what we said about salt. We're not meant to be light just to brighten up the world a bit, help people see a bit more clearly so they can get along their lives a bit better. 
a helping hand here and there, turn a torch on for you so you can see your way to your front door. No, it's about much more than that. Now, there's a bit of a clue as to what he does mean about being the light of the world, isn't there? Because Jesus said about himself in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. So if he says that about himself, and if he then says the same thing about us, presumably it means something like the same thing in both cases, right? So if we look in John, this is what Jesus says there. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, that's a pretty massive thing to say, right? So he can't possibly mean the same when he's talking about us being the light of the world, can he? Well, I think you have to understand what this light is that we have to light up the world with. It's very tempting to say, well, of course, we have no light of our own, that Jesus, the light of the world, shines on us, and that we then reflect his light, like the moon reflects the sun, and that's what people see in us. It's true, Paul does talk about us reflecting the Lord's glory. That's in 2 Corinthians. But if we read on just a very few verses from that in Corinthians, this is what Paul goes on to say. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Now, he's talking about preaching the gospel to those who don't believe, preaching Jesus Christ as Lord. And he says, God has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory. So it's not like shining a torch on us to illuminate us. It's more than that. He said he made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light. It's not so much like a torch as it's like sparklers. We've all done it as kids, haven't we? Our sparkler and he's lighting. Me, please, me, please. And mum or our older brother comes over and they light our sparkler. They touch it with their one and wait a few seconds and then, oh, whoa, hooray. And then you can do all the swishy stuff, can't you? Even that's not a perfect analogy. But Paul says God has taken his light and he's put it in our hearts to shine. He's given us his light to burn within us. He's lit the lamp of his light right there in our hearts to shine out this radiance that consists of the knowledge of God's glory. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Just as the great big light of Jesus shines as the light of the whole world, so our little light will shine as the light of the world around us. It may not be as big or as powerful, but it shines with exactly the same light. The light that says, God is glorious. He's here and you can know him. You were once darkness, Paul says, but now you are light in the Lord. You are light. Yes, you're the light of the world because you know him. Because he lives in you. Because you carry everywhere within you his Holy Spirit shining out his light from you wherever you go. That makes you the light of the world, just as Jesus was and is the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but have the light of life. You see, once again, it's about salvation. Light shines like a beacon. It says, come over here to be safe. Light shows the way, it illuminates the path. You have a secure place to walk. You know exactly which way to go. You don't have to fumble around anymore, getting nowhere or getting lost or getting hurt. You can stay in the dark and be blind 
or you can come into the light and see. But it's not about lifestyle. It's not about common grace. It's not about universal wisdom for mankind to live by. It's not about enriching human culture. It's about salvation, the light of life instead of the darkness of death. See, Jesus was very clear about this world. It's in darkness. People are blind. They're dead in sin. They're cut off from God. They're without hope. They're heading for destruction. And it's to that darkness, John says, Jesus came as the true light that gives light to every man, the light of the world. And now Jesus says to us, that is you, the light of the world, just like me, because I put my light in you to show the way and to save from death. And just as people won't find the flavor of heaven and its power to preserve anywhere else but us, the salt of the earth, so they won't find light to save from darkness anywhere else but us, the light of the world. Salt and light, that's what the world so desperately needs and that is what we are, Jesus says so. But both descriptions in our text come with an encouragement to live up to what we are. Now the first one in verse 13 has puzzled me a lot. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now salt cannot lose its saltiness. Even old salt remains salty. There's an encouragement for some of us right there. Chemically it remains the same and the chemicals will continue to do their salty thing indefinitely. I think he's saying two things here. You remember, first of all, when we looked at John 15 about eight weeks ago, the vine and the branches, and Jesus talks about the branch that doesn't remain in him being thrown away, being thrown into the fire. Very similar language to what he says here about the salt. And I said then that Jesus was talking about the nation of Israel, God's covenant people as the failed branches that were now being discarded as Jesus brings in a new covenant for a new covenant people. That's us. And I think there's something of the same meaning here. You see, Israel was supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. That all nations might come to the hill of the Lord, to Mount Zion, and learn his ways. But Israel has failed. The Pharisees become Jesus' main opponents. The salt has lost its saltiness and will be thrown out as useless. I think that refers to them, not to us, his new covenant people who have the spirit of God and so can never lose our saltiness for good. And secondly, I think it's an example of Jesus' extravagant, humorous use of language, like the plank in your own eye, like the camel going through the eye of the needle, unsalty salt, it's a nonsense. But he's saying that the only point of salt is just that, to be salty. Take that away, and there's nothing left of any value. And so he does say to his disciples in Mark 9, keep yourselves salty. So there is something to take care about. We'll come back to this point. Then he says in verse 14, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Now, this is rather easier to grasp, isn't it? Just as the only point of salt is to be salty, so the only point of light is to shine. Your light should shine just as visibly as a city on top of a hill that's in full view of everyone from miles around. You couldn't possibly hide it even if you tried. What on earth would be the point 
of lighting a lamp and then putting it under a bowl or turning a torch on and then putting it in a box. What's the point of that? That's as crazy an idea as unsalty salt. A lamp that has been deliberately lit is for shining our light to everyone around. So do it. I've lit my lamp in each of your hearts, he says. So now let it shine as it's intended to so that everyone, everywhere can see the light shining out from you. So the message is simply this. Be salty salt and be shiny light. Or to put it even more simply, just be who you really are. The salt is in you. The salt is you through the power of my Holy Spirit, which I've given you. So you now share the very nature of God himself here on planet Earth. The light is in you because I myself lit the flame in your hearts when you received the love of God. When you were born again as a new creation, as a son, as a daughter, he poured his Holy Spirit in you. He filled you with the knowledge of his glory. You're full of salt. You're full of light. In fact, you are salt. You are light. So just be your true self. Be salty salt and shiny light in this rotten and dark world around you. Simply live as I've already transformed you to be. The thing the world desperately needs you to be. Salt and light. But you see, it's like the fruit of the Spirit that we talked about last month. You can't grow the fruit of the Spirit in your life, we said, by trying hard. That's the wrong focus. The fruit grows naturally. All you have to do is remain attached to the vine that supplies all the fruit needs to grow. So too here. You can't be salty and shiny by trying hard. That's the wrong focus. The one thing you do need to do is to remain full of the Holy Spirit, who is the ongoing source of your saltiness and your light. Feed yourselves on him. Fill yourselves with the presence of Jesus. No one else can do that for you. And in these days, when we can't meet together properly to worship and to pray together and to encourage each other as we normally would, it's even more important that we're able to feed ourselves on the life of God, to have a daily diet of that which will not fail to produce in us a never-ending supply of salt and light. That's why I'm so thrilled that we're all doing together as small groups the new discipleship course, chapter one. Because it's all about the daily rhythms of a life rooted in Christ. How we can walk with him day by day. Experience more of his presence and power as we do so. It's about feeding ourselves daily on the spirit. It's one excellent way of meeting this need that we have to live lives that are full of him so that we may indeed be salt and light in the regular course of our ordinary, everyday lives. Now, I spoke to Paul yesterday just to check that we could accommodate more people. And even though the introductory session happened last week, we'll make it work if there are more people. So I implore you, I implore you, if you are not already signed up as part of a group, please do so today for your own sake, for the sake of those around you who need to see your salt and your light. Don't allow yourself to run around on empty when resources are available to help you be full. You do have a personal responsibility for your own spiritual life, so please Email the church office today to sign up if you haven't done so, and we'll make it work. You will shine like stars in the universe, Paul says, as you hold on to the word of life. 
Not as you let go of it and neglect it. There is something you have to do. But in our passage, there's only one command, isn't there? And it's this. Let your light shine. How do we do that? Apart from not hiding it, not putting our lamp under a bowl or our torch in a box. Apart from that, how can we obey this command? What does Jesus want us actually to do in response to it? Let your light shine. I think the answer is simply this. Just live a normal Christian life. Do that and your light can't help but shine. But when I say a normal Christian life, I mean the sort of normal Christian life that Gavin Calver talked about last week. If you didn't hear him, then I do urge you, listen to it online. A normal Christian life where we are faithful to Jesus and pursue him relentlessly, whatever the cost. A normal Christian life where in the current climate of increased fear and with it openness to the gospel, we take the opportunity of these days boldly to speak the message of hope to a society desperately looking for hope. A normal Christian life where instead of pulling up the drawbridge in time of need and looking after number one, we go out of our way to serve others and to love them as if they're our own flesh and blood. A normal Christian life where we hold nothing back, but in poker terms, as Gavin said, we're all in for Jesus. We're prepared to take risks, go out on a limb for him because we're living not for today, but for eternity. That's what Gavin said last week. That's a normal Christian life. And when we live it, then our light will indeed shine. Now, you don't have to be super Christian. You just have to follow Jesus with all your heart and do what he says and love the people he brings across your path. Paul specifically says, we have this treasure, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. We have it in jars of clay, in our ordinary lives. Because the power is all from him, it's none of it from us. Just follow Jesus with all your heart and your light will shine. And to some of us, the Lord would say, your light already shines far more brightly than you realize. You need to know that and not worry about results. Leave that to me. That's my business. You just keep on shining for me the way you're doing. And the reason I want your light to shine, Jesus says, is this. So that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. There, just as I was about to get practical, your good deeds, I've run out of time. But I've wondered a lot about that promise. They'll glorify your Father in heaven. Because that's not actually what non-Christians do, is it? However good your deeds, however well you live... They don't say, well, praise God for him or her. God is truly wonderful. They don't say that. I think the answer is in Peter's first letter, where he uses almost identical language. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Now, that could mean a lot of things. But what I think Jesus means is that when we live as salt and light, when we bring the kingdom of God into the lives of those around us, when they see something they can't explain and which offers hope when they have none, then there is a day when God visits them, when God turns up knocking on the door of their lives 
just as there was a day when he visited us. And on that day, they will be thirsty for the reality of a God who loves them, just as John Wesley was. And when the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shines into the darkness of their hearts, just as it did into our hearts, then on that day of God's visitation, they will most certainly glorify God, just as Jesus says they will. That's why it's so important that our light must shine, because it's all about salvation. And we, we, we are their only hope. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. Lord Jesus, help us to live like it today. We ask in your name. Let's just pray, shall we? Father, I've not been very practical this morning. If we have the desires... If you see our hearts, if our hearts are saying yes this morning, then Lord, I pray, make up for what I've left out. I pray you'd show each one of us where and how we can care for people, we can love, we can speak out, we can be bold, we can live righteously, whatever it is. Spirit, I do pray that you would come to each one of us. Show us what this means for us, that we might live our lives to show you to the world. Lord Jesus, I pray, help us this week, help us every week to let our light shine. Jesus, for some of us, I pray, give us the confidence to know that we do shine far more than we think, not to lose heart. I pray for others of us. Lord, give us the courage not to hide that light, but to boldly be ourselves and to let it shine. And for all of us, Father, I pray in Jesus' name, you give us a confidence to know that we are very ordinary, yet we really are the ones who are salt and light for you, wherever we are in this world. Lord Jesus, help us to be faithful to your command, to live as the people you've made us to be, salt and light in this dark world. And Lord, we ask it for the sake of the lost around us. And we ask it for your pleasure and for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Steve Perry. 
thank you this morning again for just the majesty of Jesus and Father as we stand as we sit as we watch online this morning we say again Lord we're just so struck that you would choose to to place your light your saltiness and trust that with each one of us and Father we, we pray this morning that by your spirit that you would call forth light this morning, that you would burn bright in our hearts this morning, that Father, we would experience a touch of you afresh today. Father, that you might be the edge to our lives, that saltiness to our lives, that hope in our lives, that, that resource in our lives. Spirit, we ask, come touch us afresh this morning. 
I like the words that Julian's given us today. Father, may they resonate in our minds as we leave this place. And Lord, as we go into this week, Father, may we be especially aware of your presence with us and in us and through us. Thank you for listening. For further podcasts or information, go to www.kca.church.